It's time again for Home Gastronomics, the podcast that brings the professional chef into your home kitchen. We're going to dig into the art of sandwiches, the types, how they're made, and what they're made of. As a double feature, we're also talking about deep frying at home. What better lunch is there than a delicious sandwich with some homemade chips? There's also a new word for the day and another question from Facebook. Be awesome and give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Tell all your friends about us and like or review the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. It really makes a difference and exposes us to a larger audience. If you're able, become a patron with a small monthly donation to keep us on the air. We'll have all of the links in the show notes for you to click on. Thanks! Here we are, friends. This time, we're going to talk about the components of a sandwich and show that they're more than just peanut butter and jelly. Don't get me wrong, PB&J is one of my go-to favorites, but we're all about elevating to that professional level in our very own kitchen. In order to elevate a sandwich, we need to understand the types and components of a sandwich. Just like salads, sandwiches have four components. Even if we don't know it, we're following those components every time we make a sandwich. The problem is all too often, we leave one or two of the components out, which knocks it down from extraordinary to ordinary and evidently homemade. Let's fix this by explaining how we make sandwiches, and you'll see where the opportunities for elevation exist. The type of sandwiches break down very simply to hot or cold and closed or open-faced. When you start to think about it, everything falls into one of these four categories. Your Philly cheese steak, hamburgers, and a well-made Cubano or Cuban sandwich are examples of hot closed sandwiches. The French croque madame is an example of a hot open-faced sandwich. But the most famous and overlooked hot open-faced sandwich is everyone's favorite pizza. This will make more sense shortly. Cold closed-faced sandwiches would include a classic club, hero subs, and even the Dagwood, which came from and was made famous due to a comic strip in the Sunday newspapers. Cold open-faced sandwiches usually fall into the categories of hors d'oeuvres. The one I immediately think of is the bruschetta that your favorite Italian restaurant probably serves. Now, we have an idea about the types of sandwiches. Let's hit the components. Similar to the components of salads, the components of a sandwich includes the bread, the spread, the filling, and the garnish. I'm going to break this down so it makes sense, using pizza as an example. The first component, bread, would be your crust. Tomato sauce or white sauce would be your spread. Your filling would be all of the toppings and the cheese. The garnish would be a sprinkling of Parmesan cheese, red pepper flakes, or oregano. And now, we have a masterful, hot, open-faced Italian sandwich. Getting a little bit deeper into this, the bread is probably the most important component of a sandwich that sets the stage for everything else, even though it is not even the main component. Bread offers a convenient way for managing a sandwich, 
giving it shape, and deciding how the final dish looks. It also provides flavor, texture, and color. There are so many types of bread available and depend completely on what your goal is. With so many options, I do want to tell you about a few of them. The classic white or wheat bread is a suitable solution for the kids' peanut butter and jelly or grilled cheese sandwich. Of course, there are so many ways to step up a grilled cheese if you wanted using different breads or cheeses. The French baguette has a delicate, airy, and tender crumb with a hard crust. It is great if you want the bread to soak up juices without becoming too soggy to handle. Italian focaccia is a light, flat, bread style with an extremely airy interior with a softer crisp crust. It is a wonderfully flavorful bread, but does need strong flavors for a filling so the bread does not overpower it. Another Italian bread, cipata, is loaded with large pores in the crumb with a medium to medium hard crust and a subtle aromatic flavor. Cipata is ideal for hot panini sandwiches but also works very well as a base for bruschetta. The unique sourdough, where the sugars in the dough have been fermented, has a characteristic tangy taste that is good all around for sandwiches that you want to give a zing to. Rye and pumpernickel breads are both made using different formulas of flour from the rye grain. Rye contains only rye flour without any wheat although it often includes whole caraway seeds. Pumpernickel, on the other hand, is made from the crushed or ground whole rye grains. Pumpernickel is also baked covered at a lower temperature for long periods of time, which gives the bread its typical dark color. Both have a very dense and moist crumb and are commonly associated with Jewish cuisine, commonly used for specialty sandwiches, containing strong meats like corned beef and pastrami. Another French bread, very different from the baguette, is brioche. It has a high egg and butter content, which gives a rich and tender crumb. Its slight sweetness balances other components very well. Its density allows it to hold up to moister fillings and spreads. Brioche is an all-around good choice for a standard sandwich. Lastly. We have the family of flatbreads that includes pitas, wraps, and other flatbreads. There is a type of flatbread for just about every culture in the world. Some are cooked over an open fire and served almost like crackers, but they can also simply be baked and make for wonderful fold-over sandwiches. You can also find them quite often recently with the trend of flatbread pizzas for its lighter feel when compared to standard pizza dough. Most people are familiar with the characteristic pita, with its hollow pocket in the middle that makes it as much fun as it can be tasty. And then there are the wraps. These are made in the same fashion as Mexican tortillas, but are often made flavorful with the addition of herbs, spinach, or sun-dried tomatoes, which also gives it an amazing look full of colors. These are a very healthy alternative to the high carbs in most other breads. You do need to be careful as they can easily fall apart if they get too moist. Of course, all of this is only a few examples, since bread can be highly customized. 
Next up is the spread. The spread adds flavor, moisture, and richness to your sandwich. It may even help hold or bind it together, and in some cases, acts as a barrier to prevent the moisture of the filling from soaking the bread. Most spreads fall into one of three categories. Butter-based, mayonnaise-based, and vegetable purees. Both butter-based and mayonnaise-based spreads offer a good moisture barrier, while pureed spreads often seep moisture. Butter-based spreads can include the gamut of compound butters as well as some thicker sauces. Mayonnaise-based spreads are the most common as it complements most fillings. The fun thing with mayonnaise is all of the small adjustments and additions you can make to the basic recipe to customize your spread. You can make some fantastic aiolis, or even make a mayonnaise with a flavored oil. In the interest of speed and budget, it's very easy to mix some ingredients into a commercially prepared mayonnaise with very nice results. Vegetable purees immediately brings ketchup to my mind, but there are so many other options that fall into this category, as almost any vegetable can make a good puree but not always good on a sandwich. While they are not technically purees, I would add the assortment of relishes and jams to the vegetable group. Some great pico de gallo, tomato jam, or a fresh fruit relish can bring a creative flair to your next sandwich. Moving on to the filling, this is the body of the sandwich and is responsible for the bulk of the sandwich's flavor. It's not uncommon for sandwiches to have more than one filling. For example, a BLT has bacon, lettuce, and tomato as its filling. Fillings should always have flavors that complement each other. The textures of different fillings can be similar or contrast greatly. You do want to keep in mind that the textures should be natural. If it is supposed to be crisp like lettuce, it needs to be crisp, not limp. Of course, This goes across all ingredients and how they need to be handled. One key in the culinary world is hot food hot, cold food cold. I kind of think that this and ingredients should complement one another pretty much sums up elevated cooking. Anyways, meats and cheeses make up the bulk of common fillings. Although you will also find bound salads, vegetables, and sometimes fruit. Lastly, we're considering presentation and garnishes for a sandwich. Cold sandwiches are often served cut in half at an angle makes a nice presentation. It's always good to see the filling. Hot sandwiches are generally served open-faced for the same reason. Some things that are considered filling in some cases can be garnishes in other cases. For instance, lettuce, tomatoes, and onions on a hamburger. These can be served on the side or on the top part of the open sandwich. On any sandwich, condiments and sauces such as mustard, mayonnaise, pickles, or others would definitely be considered the garnish and should add to the taste and presentation of the sandwich. Now, what do we serve with our sandwich? French fries or some bound salads like potato, macaroni, or coleslaw are very common. What is really nice for a sandwich at home is some crisp potato chips. And what better way to elevate it 
than to make our own. We're going to discuss how to deep fry at home next. Deep frying is when you cook something in enough fat to cover it completely. The fat usually comes in the form of oils. It's different from pan frying where you're only using a little bit of oil and turning the food often. Deep frying can be very rewarding due to the succulent, tender food that comes with that nice, crispy exterior. It's also nowhere near as hard as it sounds. They do sell small fryers designed for home use now. But why spend that much money when you can do it with a simple pot and a few utensils? Let's first talk about the special utensils you will want to get. You want to get a fry or fryer thermometer. This is slightly different than a normal thermometer as it withstands and measures much higher temps that you might encounter in deep frying. Most of them will have a clip on the shaft to hang it on the side of the pot you're using. Next, I highly recommend getting what is called a spider or skimmer. This is an all-metal shallow wire mesh basket that you'll use for moving food around in the oil or pulling food out of the oil. You can use a metal slotted spoon, but I recommend a spider because larger food items may fall out of the spoon and splash the oil. As far as a pot goes, I would recommend an 8-quart stainless steel heavy-bottomed pot. The heavy bottom helps to ensure even heating, while I feel stainless steel is the safest. Aluminum has a tendency to leach in certain situations and affect the food. And I worry about a non-stick coating being able to hold up to the temperatures of the oil without being damaged. A 6-quart pot would work just fine. Of course, an 8-quart would give you just a little bit extra safety against splashes. You only need about a gallon of oil. But what kind of oil should you get? The biggest characteristic that you need is an oil with a high smoke point. The smoke point is the temperature that oil starts to burn and break down. This process of burning and breaking down gives your food a burnt flavor as well as creating harmful free radicals which can negatively affect your health. The most common oil used for frying in a commercial setting is canola, with peanut oil probably being a close second. We use canola oil in all of my restaurants. Other oils that have a high smoke point and are good for frying include sunflower oil, light olive oil, and avocado oil. Some oils that you should definitely not use for deep frying due to their low smoke point includes walnut oil, flaxseed oil, coconut oil, and of course, butter. Setting everything up to fry, you would pour your oil into your pot and insert your thermometer. It really is best to make sure you have one that has a clip on it so you can monitor your oil temperature. Turn your stovetop onto a medium-low setting to let the oil heat slowly. You don't want to heat the oil at too high of an oven setting, otherwise you will lose control of it and it may heat to too high of a temp that will either break down the oil or burn your food. The temp you want it to get to will vary slightly depending on what you're frying. Today, for potato chips or french fries, we want it to be 350 degrees. While the oil is heating up, 
Go ahead and clean your potatoes and peel them if you like. I like to keep the peel on as I feel it gives a nice complexity and earthiness to the chips. If you are going to leave the skin on, make sure you clean the outside of the potatoes extremely well. Once your potatoes are clean, you want to slice them extremely thin, like paper thin. I use a mandolin slicer set at about 1 to 2 millimeters. You can also use a food processor that has a slicing blade about the same thickness. If you get much thicker than that, you start getting closer to cottage fries, which will cook differently and not be as crisp. You want to rinse some of the starch off of your chips and then dry them on a paper towel. If they are wet when you put them in the oil, they will pop and splatter. This is because the water superheats in the hot oil and evaporates into steam in such a manner that the oil surrounding it will splash. Very dangerous. Now that your chips are prepped and your oil is at the right temperature, you're ready to begin frying. You can carefully place the chips in the oil by hand or you can lower them in with the spider. If you put them in the oil with the spider, make sure that you spread them out so they don't clump together and can get fully cooked. You also want to make sure that you don't crowd the oil. A single layer is the ideal. Much more than that, and you'll end up with unevenly cooked chips. The ones deeper in the oil will be burnt while you're trying to skim out the ones that are floating on the top. Work in small batches. When your chips begin to float and have the slightest golden color to them, they're ready. As you're skimming your chips out of the oil, place them onto some clean, dry paper towels to catch any excess oil that will run off the chips. You do want a little bit of oil on the chips to help the salt to adhere. From the paper towel, place them into a large mixing bowl or serving bowl and toss with a small sprinkle of salt. Now enjoy your homemade chips. What's really cool about deep frying at home is that you don't need to throw the oil away after using it only once. Hopefully you saved that jug that it came in. A couple of things that you might already have around your kitchen, a funnel, a fine mesh strainer, and some cheesecloth is all that you need to save the oil properly. I will say that it may be helpful to have someone assisting you while we do this. The oil must cool completely before you transfer it for storage. Place the funnel in the container you'll be storing it in, and then line the fine mesh strainer with the cheesecloth. This will catch all the little bits and impurities that are left in the oil after frying. Slowly pour your oil through the strainer, into the funnel, and you're all set. One other cool thing is that this works wonderfully for making your own french fries, and you can use any variety of the starchy vegetables to make them. The one thing you do want to do with french fries is a double cook. This means that you'll blanch them in the oil at a lower heat, about 300 to 325, for a minute or two, to cook the potato through without coloring it, and then let it rest and cool down. Then you'll bring your oil up to 350 for your second cook, then cook them for a few minutes until they get the beautiful crisp golden color. The first cook is what cooks the potato through and gives it the silky texture on the inside of the french fry, while the second cook is what gives it the crispy and crunchy exterior. If you buy frozen french fries from the grocery, they've already had the first cook before freezing. 
so you only need to worry about the second cook. And that is how simple deep frying at home is. Oh, by the way, when you're saving your oil, you might want to label it so you don't use it for something else. We're going classical for the word of the day this time. It is mirepoix. Mirepoix is a mixture of onions, carrots, and celery that is used to help flavor food. It's used in stocks, soups, stews, and even when roasting meats. The traditional ratio for mirepoix is 2 to 1 to 1 by weight of onions, carrots, and celery. This means that you should have twice as much weight of onions as you do of carrots or celery. Don't worry if your weight isn't exact. If you're close, you'll still get the same great flavor benefits. The ingredients should be cut approximately the same size, which depends on what you're using it for. If you're making a stock, you'll want larger pieces since the stock will be cooking for hours. Smaller cuts will just turn into mush. For a stock, you would want to use 10 pounds of bones to 1 pound of mirepoix. There isn't a strict ratio for how much mirepoix to use in soups, but you do want them to be cut into smaller dice so it will cook faster. The other thing about mirepoix that's really cool is almost every cuisine has a variation that is customized to their flavor profiles. One variation is used to make clear stocks or broths. It is a white mirepoix, which uses parsnips instead of carrots, and may also add mushrooms. The Italian battuto cooks the ingredients in olive oil and adds garlic, parsley, and fennel. Spanish sofrito is similar to battuto, but it uses tomatoes instead of fennel. The Thai curries start with shallots, chilies, and lemongrass, then add the curry seasoning. Indian flavors start with onion, garlic, and ginger, and then add a hot pepper. Germany's Suppengrün uses leeks instead of onions in a traditional mirepoix mix. There's also the Russian Zazarka, which adds beets or peppers to the classical mirepoix. Of course, the closest one to home here in America is Louisiana's Cajun cooking. In Cajun Creole cooking, the variation of mirepoix is so vital to its flavorings that it is referred to as the Holy Trinity. It is three parts of onion, two parts celery, and one part green bell pepper. Holy Trinity imparts the perfect flavor for Cajun cooking's gumbos, etouffees, and jambalayas. With so many variations, you can see it's all about adding flavor to your dishes. The ingredients you use rely completely on the flavor profile you're shooting for. The point is enhancement. Thanks to everyone listening. But remember, for a small monthly donation by becoming a patron, you could hear your name right here, as well as score some other goodies. Besides, helping to keep us going would really show how cool you are. Head over to patron.podbean.com slash homegastronomics to see our donation levels and rewards. Sign up if you're able and reap the fruits of my labor. 
Now on to this episode's questions and answers. We have a question from Facebook this month that is very dear to my heart since I am lactose intolerant. We were asked, can lactose-free milk or almond milk be substituted in recipes for regular milk? The basic answer is yes. I use lactose-free milk since I like the milk taste. It is basically regular milk with the lactase enzyme added into it to help break down the milk sugars that give lactose intolerant people the problems. Some of the other dairy alternatives such as almond milk, soy milk, or coconut milk tend to have a slight difference in flavor that might come through to your finished project. Lactose-free milk can absolutely be used one-for-one in cooking and baking. Some of the milk alternatives have some quirks about them that affect cooking. For instance, soy milk has a higher protein count than some of the others, which makes it a little bit better for baking when you consider the structure of doughs and batters. However, it is slightly less than neutral flavor profile that will be intensified by cooking in sauces. Some of the nut-based alternatives like almond or cashew would be better suited. Coconut milk has a higher fat content than the others, which lends well to rich dishes like puddings or custards. It does, however, have a very strong flavor profile, so make sure you don't mind the coconut. Personally, my go-to, unless you actually have a casein allergy, is to use lactose-free milk as it is closest to the original product. The one thing that milk alternatives can't replace is heavy whipping cream. This is for two reasons. First, Heavy cream has a considerably higher fat content, about 35%, when compared to even whole milk, which only has about 3-4% to fat content. Second, regular milk and milk alternatives are homogenized, while heavy cream is not. Homogenization is a process that milks undergo where the fat is broken down into extremely small particles and dispersed equally throughout the milk. Heavy cream is not homogenized. If you've ever gotten a container of heavy cream and found a solid mass floating at the top when you open it, you can tell. That solid mass is the milk fat that has floated to the top of the cream. A good shake will mix it up. That fat, however, is what allows heavy cream to be whipped into peaks for things like whipped cream or mousses. The combination of homogenization and the lower fat content make it impossible to substitute for heavy cream. There are some recipes you can find to use almond milk or canned coconut milk as a substitute, but you still have to add thickeners and other agents to get it to work properly. The good news is that commercially available Cool Whip is dairy-free, so you can still have whipped cream on top of your non-dairy banana split if you want it. We hope you enjoyed the show this month. Drop us a line on social media or on our website to let us know what your favorite part was. You can also ask your questions or give show ideas. Our website and blog can be found at www.homegastronomics.com. On social media, we are Home Gastronomics on Facebook, at the Chef Chewy on Twitter, and Home Gastronomics on Instagram. We also just started a YouTube channel, 
where you can find a series of videos that tie into the podcast. Just search for Home Gastronomics. You'll start to notice a little more separation of content now that we have all of the resources set up. Be sure to follow us to not miss a thing. We are on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Give us a like and review there. If you like what we're working on and you want to keep it going, consider becoming a patron to support this whole thing. I really look forward to seeing what questions you give us for next month. Keep them coming. Thanks for listening, guys, and see you next time.